0: Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Reports Weekly Cyber Report, sponsored by Fortress Information Security. I'm your host, Vago Meradian. Later in the program, the Mitchell Institute for Aerospace Studies, Heather Penny, on why it's so important to get operators and the technical community on the same page when developing cyber, AI, and other cutting-edge technologies. But first, joining us today is retired United States Navy Rear Admiral Mark Montgomery, the Senior Director of the Center on Cyber and Technology Innovation at the Foundation. Foundation for the Defense of Democracies, who is also a senior advisor uh, on the Bipartisan Cyberspace Solarium Commission. Uh, Mark, it's always an honor and pleasure having you on the program. Thanks so much for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me, Vago. Appreciate it.
0: And before we get started, our daily podcast is sponsored by Bell, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage, Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall, and General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. Uh, Mark, um, you know, we've been having conversations about appropriations and markup, and on our side of the conversation, it tends to beyond where we're going on F-22, on F-35s, on shipbuilding or on army manpower levels without as much of a focus on what's going on in the cyber uh, universe. There's a lot of activity on appropriations and on markups. Why don't you start us off on appropriations and the progress that we've seen?
1: Thanks. So, Vago, uh, what I'd like to do is start with the, the House Homeland area and because uh, uh, really that was where the big changes, uh, the big growth was. The House Homeland uh, Security Appropriations Subcommittee took the $2.5 billion presidential budget submission and added another nearly $400 million to top it off at about $2.92 billion. Uh, the Cyberspace Solarium Commission, where I'd come from, had recommended about $3 billion. So they're right in the ballpark there. And what they really did was, I mean, we had a weird appropriations year last year where the, the uh, president's budget comes out only two weeks after the final you know, omnibus bills agreed to. As a result, um, you know, for the, for, particularly for the non-DOD agencies, they were writing these blind. They didn't know how much Congress was going to give in 22. So um, it, it, the baseline that Congress established in 22, about $2.55 even though there was a, a presidential budget of $2.5 it wasn't the same money. And what the Congress did was they did a pretty good job uh, taking their original baseline, adding in many of the president's plus-ups and then adding in their own plus ups. And they ended out at about $2.92 Now, look, if you ask someone like Representative John Katko, he'd tell you CISA is a $5 billion agency. I'd say I agree with him. And I'd say CISA in 2027 or 2028 is a $5 billion agency. But right now, it's a $3 billion agency. This is big stuff. I mean, they really put some smart, smart money in here. Um, You know, they made sure that they've got the... uh, the money for um, education and training restored. Uh, They made sure that they've got sufficient funding to to allow for uh, uh, working with other federal agencies to improve their cybersecurity, non-DOD agencies, DOD um, not surprisingly takes care of itself. But this is a significant effort to improve the the integrated security of the .gov domain. And that's going to be important because with all the executive orders that come out, with um, uh, you know, with zero trust architecture, with uh, cyber hygiene demands, with um, request, you know, you know, guidance for anomalous activity detection on your networks, you needed this extra funding out there. So this 2.9 plus billion dollars is going to go a long way to having the .gov be a decent partner to the .mil as we attempt to defend the. the federal government's uh, IT infrastructure. So overall, I think that was a good move.
0: Um, and uh, it's, it's, it's always positive to see that, you know, the nation is getting, and, and this administration as you and others uh, have discussed is working hard to get this the cyber, uh, def- to improve the cyber defenses of the nation. Uh, talk to us a little bit about what, are, what the authorizers are doing uh, on uh, cyber as well and how we're moving uh, the needle on the dot mill side of the universe.
1: Uh, there, you know, the uh, the National Defense Authorization Act, the, the markups came up, came out from both the the House and the Senate. You know, in principle, the markups are issues that are a majority, it, it, at least a plurality, if not a majority, DOD in nature. So you won't see all the, the things in here about making transportation better or, or incident reporting for the federal government. That stuff all happens later during floor amendments. Here in the markup, it really dealt with... Um, DOD programs. And there was a lot of work in here. And there wasn't just authorities work, as has historically been done, but there was a lot of, um, you know, authorities leading to appropriations. So, you know, very specifically, Cybercom's, Cybercom's hunt forward operations, which were very useful in Ukraine from last fall through February of this year, got a, uh, an increase of $44 million that's a significant bump in a a program uh, of the size it is that that's going to help. They, they gave a $50 million bump to cybercom for artificial intelligence systems. I think that's going to be useful. And then each of the service um, cyber programs were given specific plus ups that I really think got it. And what they would probably, if they weren't on unfunded list, they should have been on unfunded list, you know, $25 million for the air force cyber resilience program for its weapon systems. Um, 20 million dollars for uh, army to improve its see, know, its cyber network op- uh, offensive operations uh, money for the navy uh to uh, tra- transition some of their technology demonstrators in, in, into into effort i mean really good um efforts here i would say totaling up about you know 220 you know just around 200 million dollars of very of targeted funding to improve these and then one that i think is long overdue We've got to get its security enhancements in the NC3, the Nuclear Command, Control, and Communications Network. And there's some extra money thrown throw into that, um, and uh, and like I said, uh, a grunch of money for cyber command. In fact, like money beyond the forty-four right. million for um, for the for the threat hunting overseas. Some money for their own cyber warfighting fighting architecture development. So really, this was quality stuff, uh, and uh, and I'm excited about it. And then there were posture changes, Vago, not just money, but how we operate. There was an, there's a call for an assistant secretary of defense for cyber. This is long overdue. Um, I'll just say the government had a choice on creating a cyber force or space force three or four years ago. I think they made the wrong choice, but they made a choice. And uh, you know, the vice president weighed in pretty heavy and we have a space force. Um, The one thing I'll say after waiting 70 years between creation of military services is you don't create another one, two or three years later. So I think we all recognize we're not gonna have a cyber force soon. With that recognized, what we need is someone focused inside OSD and leading the policy issues and wrangling the services at a senior enough level. And that needs to be an assistant sector defense. The current one, uh, John Plum has got the nuclear, the nuclear, uh, um, uh, the nuclear weapons uh, modernization. He's got missile defense, he's got weapons of mass destruction, and he's got space. And he's cyber. I'll just say that when you have like the four signs of the apocalypse in cyber, cyber probably doesn't do that well. Right. So, you know, you want someone focused on this. This assistant secretary of defense is also the principal cyber advisor, which is a which is a congressionally mandated position that, that Senator Rounds and others have put a lot of effort into. So breaking this, breaking out this assistant secretary, sec, assistant secretary for cyber, while not something Congress really wants to do you know, creating like a 28th assistant secretary, whatever the number is, a pretty high number it's still really necessary um, so that we can concentrate on this in the absence of having a cyber force. And equally, there were, there were a number of important provisions in the House NDA's markup. Uh, Jim Langevin once again uh, pointed, put in his collaborative environment, the way that we share information uh, between government agencies and government agencies with the private sector. Uh, that will be his kind of like his uh, final gift uh, as he departs to Congress. And then there were some very specific guidance for services, one of which was uh, pushing the Navy to create a cyber operator designator for officer and enlisted personnel so that the Navy can be consistent with the other services and, and kind of get that focus so that an officer or enlisted man doesn't have to work between two communities, be both a cryptologist and a cyber operator, but instead, like in the Army and Air Force focus on that cyber operational skill, that's gonna become more and more necessary as there's higher higher levels of certifications, whether it's to work Title 10 issues or Title 50 issues um, for these, uh, these on-net operators. So developing a cyber operator unique designator um, sounds like a pretty good idea to me and it's coming out of the house NDAA.
0: Um, let me ask you uh, one last uh, question. Our next guest, Heather Penny uh, of the Mitchell Institute for Aerospace Studies, uh, is, is going to talk to us about why it's so important to make sure that operators and the technical community are on the same page, uh, whether they're on cyber, whether it's on artificial intelligence, uh, and to understand that it's not just sprinkling pixie dust on everything and getting it uh, to work, that you know, disconnect is even most profound likely on the artificial intelligence side. Are lawmakers, uh, Mark, beginning to understand the links and the importance that actually the hardware vulnerabilities are even bigger than the software vulnerabilities. Because when people think about cyber, they have a tendency of thinking about the coding. They're thinking about the software, as opposed to thinking about the hardware, which is actually even more problematic than the software is. And I don't say that lightly, right? Are they beginning to get that connection of these two things? Because there's a focus on S bombs, for example, software bill of uh, origin, whereas the, the hardware bills of origin are actually equally vexing.
1: Yeah, you're exactly right, uh, Vago. And, and, you know, a, a kind of poorly understood thing, both on the Hill and in general, is the idea that while the, Uni- the United States has maintained a role in in software development, a significant role. In fact, if you look at the United States and Israel combined are probably um, 70 to 75% of all, you know, startup cybersecurity software companies, you know, between the two, with us being the bono, but then. Israel being second and then a distant you know, c- c- countries behind that. We still have a, a predominant role in cybersecurity development. Now, does that mean you can't have challenges within that cybersecurity and flaws and malware? Of course you can, and you need S-bombs. But the hardware situ- landscape is much worse and much more challenging. The vast, vast, vast majority of, of IT, IT information, uh, communications, community, uh, so, uh, hardware is made overseas. I would say it's down. We're down to two or three percent of you know kind of new of new entrepreneurial startups in that field. That it you know sit, you know as compared as contrasted say two thousand when we were a majority of this, but we have lost our uh, our footing there, uh, and uh, and the um, and so much much more of this stuff is built overseas. Uh, we're not going to be be able to to uh, to um uh you know to to bring that. Uh, back to you know onshore that back to the United States. At best, we'll be able to friendshore it, and so that hard, you're exactly right. Hardware and materials are just as important. Uh, we have found malware on hardware repeatedly. It's and in some ways, it's a it's an easier uh, it, it's an easier installation. It's probably higher harder to maintain as an espionage event, but it's an easier installation. So your point is exactly right. The IT hardware has to get the same level of attention as a software. And in fact, from an espionage and a likely penetration point of view, I'd say our risk is greater in hardware than software.
0: And that realization is beginning to dawn on lawmakers as well.
1: I think so. But look, again, what I just said is not necessarily common knowledge. So on the Hill, I mean, I think staffers get it, but I just think it's one of these things where you know, when, when you're having to, you know, when you're a an R-Hask, Hask or SASK member, you know, looking at all these different issues with so many things in play, it's very hard. Outside of the Jim Langevins of the world and the and the Mike Gallagher's and the John Katko's, Yvette Clark, you know, there's a handful of and Mike Rounds gets this on the Senate side. I, I think uh, you know, I, I think a handful of other senators get it. But you know, Mark Warner, they get this. But that is a it is a small minority that understand the IT hardware challenge we're facing.
0: And and, and and very briefly, right? I mean, the Solarium Commission's job was also to increase awareness and to act as that educating uh, tool. Other members uh, have said to me that they bear the responsibility for telling other members about it. What more do we need to do to get a more universal understanding of the magnitude of the problem? Because you could argue we haven't been getting those financial resources that we prioritize the planes, ships, and vehicles. We're trying to get a handle on it. Secretary Kendall has talked about uh, that uh, very articulately. What more has to be done to educate members uh, and staff so that they fully understand this, so that it's not just a cadre of Jedi who get it, but that it's more broadly understood?
1: Well, the problem is, of course, I mean, I could say the the easy answer is to say, well, a GAO report or CRS study. But the reality is those are read by the same group of people whose names I just mentioned are the only ones who are likely to read the executive summary of that. And then like Jim Langevin will read the whole report because that's who he is. Um, So, you know, it's hard. I mean, you know, one way is that we get hit hard with a with an IT hardware compromise, you know, um, similar to the software compromises we've experienced. I don't wish for that. Um, It's going to be hard. I don't think that if there was an easy answer on this, the commission would have pushed it. You know, we'd have pushed that button. I don't think there's an easy answer, but I do think it's, you know, it's um, it's uh, uh, media uh, like this and and kind of and mixed with the GAO reports and the CRS reports that that will kind of raise us awareness, and then hopefully it doesn't take um, an event, uh, but often it takes an event to get the focus of congressional members.
0: Mark, uh, thanks so very much for joining us, and look forward to having you back on again uh, real soon. Thanks so much. Thanks. Joining us now is Heather Penny, a senior resident fellow at the Mitchell Institute for Aerospace Studies. She is a former United States Air Force fighter pilot who is a leading aerospace strategist and thinker and the co-author of a thoughtful uh, recent paper uh, delivered earlier this year, Beyond Pixie Dust, A Framework for Understanding and Developing Autonomy in Unmanned Aircraft. Heather, thanks so very much for joining us.
2: Vago, as always, it's great to be with you.
0: Uh, it is uh, it's always a pleasure having you on uh, Heather and there are some folks in our uh, audience are thinking like okay you know this is an interesting topic for a cyber report uh, but one of the things which i think is is most compelling is you know ultimately the ability to, to deliver uh, an autonomous capability is a confluence of artificial intelligence of software of cyber uh, of of coding uh, and one of the interesting themes in the report is, the, that, that we're not using a common understanding, a common framework that will help us get to this autonomous future that we all recognize we, we, need, we need to achieve. And indeed, one of the reasons we started the cyber report was because uh, senior folks were telling us, you know, look, we don't understand this space as well as we should. And I think that this is a very relevant conversation on how important it is to be able to get this joined up, what, what did you find in your report and why is this so important and why is this more important causing the kind of problems it's causing when, when actually folks do not have that common understanding, that there's sort of this, the, the small cadre who sort of gets it and understands the language and the lingo and the capability. And then what happens when that understanding is not more broadly shared?
2: Well, the the primary challenge when that broader understanding is not shared is that we're not aligning our developmental efforts with what warfighter needs actually are. That's the bottom line. So as smart and as talented and as as genius as many of our scientists, technologists, and engineers are, if they don't really understand what the warfighter needs, they won't be able to develop to those mission requirements. Even though those requirements might be stated in a piece of paper, it's a, the shared expectation that's really important and the continual interaction between the warfighters and the technologists as they deliver that. And the other side of that too is that you know, if there's not that shared understanding, warfighters, policymakers, senior leaders may have and likely have uh wrong expectations about what the actual capabilities of these developmental programs may be, so that when they're actually beginning to be fielded, warfighters fighters are disappointed because it doesn't do what they expected it to do. Senior leaders are making decisions um, about resourcing, about force structure on faulty assumptions. Um, senior leaders, you know, policymakers may be developing war plans, uh, again, on faulty assumptions because they don't share the understanding of of what the autonomous systems are are really capable of, and so being able to align that understanding and, and create a language that allows them to interact on an in an iterative way is crucial to developing and fielding the systems that we need that we expect will be effective.
0: Um, is it? Um, I, I remember uh, uh, a couple of uh, years ago, uh, a general officer, uh, friend of mine. Um, you know, we were, we were talking about cyber and cyber education, uh, and, and really the, the, the entirety of data and AI and an understanding of it and, and how the communities sort of did, we're talking a little bit past each other. Uh, and, and soon after we discussed, you know, he, he joked with me that he got invited to, you know, a, a general officer quote remedial cyber, uh, uh, training course, uh, and was wondering whether or not I'd given him up, uh, because he'd seen me talking, uh, to, uh, the, their his services uh, CIO anyway I, I did not give him up and I I assured him of that. <laughs> well, is you know, I there...
2: mean, what you talk about is 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 kind of the challenge, right? Because we hear we hear senior leaders, we hear policymakers talk about how autonomy is going to give us all these capabilities, AI is going to give us all of these capabilities, but they treat it like pixie dust, um, like it's just something we can magically sprinkle over weapon systems and suddenly they solve all the hard problems. When that's not really the case. We have to be able to get down into the nuts and bolts and understand that AI is fundamentally a specialized algorithm, and how we build it um, matters. And autonomy isn't necessarily AI. AI isn't necessarily autonomy, but we, what we think about when we, we talk about um, uncrewed autonomous aircraft, whether or not you know, they're collaborative or so forth, is we think that there's some AI um, in there. And in reality, it's going to be some kind of mix. So knowing where to target our technical efforts, um, what should be more deterministic traditional programming, what should be, um, have that AI algorithm that can self-optimize. These, th- these are the conversations we need to be having at a detailed granular level.
0: This is all in, in, in some respects, right? All of a same, similar Sphere, right? Whether it's it's software, uh, it's cyber, it's information, it's artificial intelligence. Ultimately, it's about data and how it's moved and how it's used and how it's defended, right? And and harvested. Do you do you have a sense that, for example, the understanding of AI or cyber uh, and that knowledge base and the common understanding, you know, is is one of them better than another? I mean, do do folks have a better understanding of um, one or the other, because one of the challenges has been, uh, right, that the services themselves have not been taking, for example, cybersecurity as seriously, uh, in part because it's all about investing in more hardware as opposed to saying, hey, wait a minute, the hardware we're developing might actually have vulnerabilities at a software and at a hardware level uh, that will compromise it, right? Uh, and now we're seeing the military services are putting money, Secretary Kendall uh, earlier this year. Uh, mentioned that look, we are absolutely looking at making sure that we are hardening and safeguarding uh, our our systems to make sure that those airplanes can take off when they need to get off, and they can't get uh, get grounded. Right? It doesn't matter if you have the best bombers and white men if they end up being sidelined because of um, a, a cyber attack. Do you do you get a sense that the the understanding is better in certain fields than another, or do they all suffer from not enough people being as conversant and comfortable? in these terms, terminologies, uh, limitations, and opportunities as they as they need to be?
2: Well, I think that everybody is coming to that understanding that we do need to be able to protect and secure um, our systems as well as our data. That's a major focus, especially as you mentioned, our weapon systems are cyber physical platforms now. It's very, very difficult, if not impossible, to act to the cyber, the software, the algorithms has the capabilities, of the physical platform are dependent on that software, on those capabilities. I think one of the biggest challenges that we're having is that uh, broadly speaking, um, the DOD approach to um, cybersecurity is really about building that, that fortress. And we're seeing the commercial world move away from that. Um, it, as you've noted, like, like the whole movement towards DevSecOps um, has been, uh, it's been difficult for the services to be able to do because it is so antithetical to the way that we've traditionally approached uh, cybersecurity. Um, and, and although we're as excited about the potential, it's um, it's been challenging for the organization to be able to fully embrace, especially given how antiquated many of our weapon systems actually are um, in that they have a tremendous amount of not just technical debt, uh, but that they're not necessarily in terms of their software packaging as able to adapt to these faster, more rapid processes for cybersecurity. But it's really important to note that as we move into more AI, where we have algorithms that are self-optimizing, that they're learning, that we will need to begin to change the way that we do um, verification and validation. Because you know the way that, this, that the DOD has done this in the past has been based off the scientific method same input in should result in the same output, right? But that's not how AI is going to work. So one of the policy things that we will need to begin to grapple with is both how do we verify and validate um, this kind of autonomy that makes the, you know, makes room for uh, different outcomes and how do we then also protect the data, protect the algorithms, protect how we train it, protect how we weight it. And as, as we will see the need to, I think really push some of the ability to program, reprogram, adapt, train uh, down to the to the forward edge of the battle space, uh, that's gonna be an even bigger challenge because the other piece of it too, is that we really centralized so much of our cyber today. Uh, and that's going to be a limitation moving into the future.
0: I know that each of the services has been in trying to improve um... Cyber education. Uh, try, you know, uh, uh, L- Lieutenant General Tim Hawk, uh, commander of the 16th Air Force, and he's going to be the new deputy commander of U.S. Cyber Command. Uh, talked about that, right? I mean, each of the services have programs to try to improve education from uh, on on a on a cyber standpoint. Um, obviously, right? It's a little bit different because AI. It, it's sort of seen as a panacea, but as you said, right, they're very specific algorithms that allow you to do very specific uh, specific things. From your standpoint, how do we get beyond the pixie dust, right? I mean, aside from sort of baseline education and making sure that Airmen, you know, know a little bit of more up from down when it, when it comes to this, ultimately, what are the things that get us beyond the pixie dust?
2: Well, I think we need to understand, as you mentioned, I mean, this is not something that we can just magically sprinkle. These are really just it is more coding, it is more math, it is more algorithms that are very targeted. And part of getting to how we, you know, smartly move forward is we don't need to turn our warfighters into software engineers. What we need to do is get them more involved in the development of their system so they can articulate what matters and what doesn't matter. So for example, in our AI framework study, what we did was we created two points of view, if you will, to represent how the warfighter thinks about the world and how engineers think about the world and what both of them need to do and what both of them understand in terms of mission accomplishment. And we actually modeled um, how one might go about developing an uncrewed autonomous aircraft based off of the cognitive functions of a combat pilot in the battle space. So it was something that um, a warfighter intuitively grasped, they could sort of put themselves in the mindset, if you will, sort of get an applied understanding of how the uh, autonomy might work. And then that allowed them to be able to decide how much AI did they really need, how much of it could be more deterministic, more automated, if you will. And then that gives the engineers a way to approach the problem set and approach the demand signal, if you will, from the warfighter, in a way that allowed them to functionally decompose that problem, uh, because right now what we're really doing is we're sort of giving these these requirements, but without the warfighter deeply involved. The engineers are beginning to move forward, and they may or may not uh, really deliver the system that the warfighter needs, or they might deliver it, but it, it's it's got too much of too much autonomy, or they might not be focusing their economy of effort in the areas that really matter.
0: So, what are, um, or, organize, so, so right, what are some of the more granular changes that have to happen to get us there?
2: Well, so some of the, the granular changes that need to happen is actually getting warfighters uh, involved in the development of the systems, more than just what's going on right now where you have someone parachute in, sort of take a couple of briefs or share PowerPoints and then depart back out. And of course, this is challenged by the fact that we do fundamentally have a shortage of, of combat pilots within the force, so everyone is always fighting for these bodies, right? You'll hear um, senior leaders say, well, we don't really have a shortage of fighter pilots. It's just a shortage of fighter pilots on the staff. Well, that matters too. There's a reason why their expertise needs to be represented um, on the staff. So, I mean, the first piece is, obviously, we uh, you know we think that this framework that we've developed is useful, so we would encourage the service to adopt the framework and then begin to iterate on it. It's just a start, Um, you know, but what it needs to do is then facilitate that collaboration between the warfighters, the technologists, and, um, you know, engineers within industry. And as I said, that really is going to take more than just parachuting and and sharing briefings. It's going to need to be bodies that live together and sit right next to each other as they move forward. And then, you know, we recommended um, that uh, the Deputy Chief of Staff for Strategy Integration Requirements, A5, should actually own the framework in collaboration with the A3. And because it's going to take a champion to really push this through the organization.
0: Who does that champion need to be then? Is this the secretary? Is it the chief? Um, because I think, at, right, I mean, what's what's the level of oomph needed?
2: Uh, we think it's the A5. It's the, it's the, the half A5. Um, with again, close collaborations or that matrix relationship with the A3, ACC and Global Strike Command. Again, for this particular study, we were really closely focused on um, autonomous uh, collaborative combat aircraft. Um, so that's really where, and, and that's part of where we see the demand signal for the value proposition of these, of these systems, which again would be aligned with um, Secretary Kendall's operational imperatives for next generation air dominance and the uh, B-21 long-range strike systems. So we think, but we think that A-5, because they are so heavily involved in requirements, is the key way that you really push the warfighter involvement and have them closely integrated with whatever is being developed.
0: Heather, thanks very much. It's always a pleasure uh, having you on. And of course, the A5 is the Deputy Chief of Staff uh, for Strategy Integration and Requirements. So I should have clarified that for the handful of people out there who don't understand what an A5 is and are saying like, wow. Yeah, I you bet.
2: Understand. Before you let me go, um, I would be remiss if I didn't uh, tell, you, tell the audience that they can uh, find our AI framework report on the Mitchell Institute for Aerospace Studies um, on our website. So thank you so much.
0: Uh, in, indeed, and I should also uh, point out uh, to the audience uh, that uh, Major Chris Olson uh, also participated and was your co-author uh, on that uh, paper, which has a a uh, a great forward by the Dean of the Mitchell Institute, none other than United States Air Force retired United States Air Force Lieutenant General Dave Zetar Deptula.
2: Yeah, thank you for mentioning uh, uh, <laughs> General Deptula, but also um, uh, Chris Olson. He was a great partner and. You know, we we're fortunate at Mitchell to have a number of Air Force fellows with us, and it really um, gives you a lot of, of, of faith in terms of the talent uh, and the abilities and, and the imagination and creativity and the professionalism and expertise of these young, young warfighters.
0: Uh, absolutely. You guys have a terrific program there uh, at Mitchell. Heather, thanks very much. It's always an honor and pleasure having you on the program. Look forward to having you back on again soon. Thanks so much.
2: Thanks, Fago.